sorry, William. It was evident to everyone but Mrs. Brown that the ring had not come out of a cracker, but had been carefully brought by Hubert in order to play this trick on William. William was wiping water out of his eyes and ears. Oh, it's quite all right, dear, said Mrs. Brown. It was quite an accident, we all saw. They shouldn't have such nasty things in crackers, but it wasn't your fault. Tell him that you don't mind a bit, William. But William hastily left the room. The rest of the party passed off uneventfully. The Hubert Laynite said goodbye at the end with nauseous gratitude and went sniggering down the drive. There, William, said Mrs. Brown as she shut the door. I knew it would be all right. They were so grateful and they enjoyed it so much. And you're quite friends now, aren't you? But William was already upstairs in his bedroom, pummeling his bolster with such energy that he burst his collar open. During the days that intervened between William's party and Hubert Lane's party, the Hubert Laneites kept carefully out of the way of the outlaws. Yet the outlaws felt uneasily that something was brewing. We've got to do something to them at their party, same as they did to us at ours, said Ginger firmly. Yes, but what can we do, said William. We can't start fighting them. We promise not to. And there's nothing else we can do. Just wait. Just wait till their party's over. But they'll never forget that water squirt, said Ginger mournfully. Unless we do something back, said Douglas. What can we do in their house with them watching us all the time, said Henry. We must just think, said William. There's four days and we'll think hard. But the day of Hubert's party arrived and they'd thought of nothing. They met in the old barn in the morning to arrange their plan of action but none of them could think of any plan of action to arrange, and the meeting broke up gloomily at lunchtime, without having come to any decision at all. William walked slowly and draggingly through the village on his way home. His mother had told him to stop at the baker's with an order for her, and it was a sign of his intense depression that he remembered to do it. He entered the baker's shop. It seemed to be full of people. Then he suddenly realised that the mountainous lady just in front of him was Mrs Lane, she was talking in a loud voice to a friend. Yes, Hubie's party is this afternoon. We're having William Brown and his friends to put a stop to that silly quarrel that's gone on so long. Hubie's so lovable that I simply can't think how anyone could quarrel with him. But of course it'll be all right after today. We're having a Father Christmas, you know. Bates, our gardener, is going to be the Father Christmas and give out presents. I've given Hubie three pounds to get some really nice presents for it to celebrate the ending of the feud. William waited his turn, gave his message, and went home for lunch. Immediately after lunch, he made his way to Bates's cottage, which stood on the road at the end of the lane's garden. William approached the cottage with great circumspection, looking around to make sure that none of the Hubert Lanites was in sight. He opened the gate, walked up the path, and knocked at the door, standing poised on one foot, ready to turn to flee, should Bates, recognising him and remembering some of his former exploits in his kitchen garden, attack him on sight. He heaved a sigh of relief, however, when Bates opened the door. It was clear that Bates did not recognise him. He merely received him with an ungracious scowl. Well, said Bates, what do you want? William assumed an ingratiating smile, the smile of a boy who has every right to demand admittance to the cottage. I say, he said, with a fairly good imitation of the Hubert Lanite's most patronising manner, you've got the Father Christmas things here, haven't you? 
The ungraciousness of Bates's scowl did not relax. He'd been pestered to death over the Father Christmas things. He took for granted that William was one of the Hubert Laynites, coming once more to muss up his bag of parcels and take one out or put one in or snigger over them as they'd been doing every day for the last week. Yes, he said. I've got the things here, and they're all right, so there's no need to start upsetting of them again. I've had enough of you coming in him, mussing the place up. I only wanted to count them and make sure that we got the right number, said William, with an oily friendliness that was worthy of Hubert himself. All right, go in and count them. I tell you, I'm sick of a whole lot of you, I am. And Bates waved him irascibly into the back parlour. William entered and threw a quick glance out of the window. Yes, Ginger was there, as they'd arranged he should be, hovering near the shed where the apples were sorted. Then he looked round the room. A red cloak and hood and white beard were spread out on the sofa, and on the hearthrug lay a sackful of small parcels. William fell on his knees and began to make a pretense of counting the parcels. Suddenly he looked up and gazed out of the window. I say, he said, there's a boy taking your apples. Bates leapt to the window. There, upon the roof of the shed, was Ginger with an arm through the open window, obviously in the act of purloining apples. With a yell of fury, Bates sprang to the door and down the path towards the shed. Left alone, William turned his attention quickly to the sack. It contained parcels, each one labelled and named. He had to act quickly. He had no time to investigate. He had to act solely upon his suspicions and his knowledge of the characters of Hubert and his friends. Quickly, he began to change the labels of the little parcels. Just as he was fastening the last one, Bates returned, hot and breathless, having failed to catch the nimble ginger. Now you clear out, he said. I'm sick of the lot of you. Smiling the patronising smile of a laynite, William took a hurried departure and ran home as quickly as he could to change. The Hubert Laynites received the outlaws with even more nauseous friendliness than they'd shown at William's house. It was evident, however, from the way they sniggered and nudged each other that they'd some plan prepared. William felt anxious. Suppose that the plot they'd so obviously prepared had nothing to do with the Father Christmas. They went into the hall after tea, and Mrs. Lane said roguishly, Now, boys, I've got a visitor for you. Immediately, Bates, inadequately disguised as Father Christmas, and looking fiercely resentful of the whole proceedings, entered with his sack. The Hubert Laneite sniggered delightedly. This was evidently the crowning moment of the afternoon. Bates took the parcels out, one by one, announcing the name on each label. The first said, William. The Hubert Laneites watched him go up to receive it in paroxysms of silent mirth. William took it and opened it, wearing a sphinx-like expression. It was the most magnificent mouth organ that he'd ever seen. The mouths of the Hubert Laneites dropped open in horror and amazement. It was evidently the present that Hubert had destined for himself. Bates called out Hubert's name. Hubert, his mouth still hanging open with horror and amazement, went to receive his parcel. It contained a short pencil with a shield and rubber, of the sort that can be purchased for a penny or tuppence. He went back to his seat, blinking. He examined his label. It bore his name. He examined William's label. It bore William's name. There was no mistake about it. William was thanking Mrs. Lane effusively for his present. Oh, yes, dear, she was saying. I'm so glad you like it. I haven't had time to look at them, but I told Hubie to get nice things. 
Hubert opened his mouth to protest and then shut it again. He was beaten, and he knew it. He couldn't very well tell his mother that he'd spent the bulk of the money on presents for himself and his particular friends, and had spent only a few coppers on the outlaw's presents. He couldn't think what had happened. Meanwhile, the presentation was going on. Bertie Franks's present was a ruler that could not have cost more than a penny, and Ginger's was a magnificent electric torch. Bertie stared at the torch with an expression that would have done credit to a tragic mask, and Ginger hastened to establish his permanent right to his prize by going up to thank Mrs Lane for it. Oh, yes, it's lovely, dear, she said. I told Hubie to get nice things. Douglas's present was a splendid penknife, and Henry's a fountain pen, while the corresponding presents for the Hubert Lanites were an India rubber and a notebook. The Hubert Lanites watched their presents passing into their enemies' hands with expressions of helpless agony. But Douglas's parcel had more than a penknife in it. It had a little bunch of imitation flowers with an India rubber bulb attached and a tiny label saying, Show this to William and press the rubber thing. Douglas took it to Hubert. Hubert knew what it was, of course, for he'd bought it, but he was paralysed with horror at the whole situation. Look, Hubert, said Douglas. A fountain of ink caught Hubert neatly in the eye. Douglas was all surprise and contrition. I'm so sorry, Hubert, he said. I'd no idea that it was going to do that. I'd just got it out of my parcel, and I'd no idea it was going to do that. I'm so sorry, Mrs Lane. I'd no idea it was going to do that. Of course you hadn't, dear, said Mrs Lane. It's Hubert's own fault for buying a thing like that. It's very foolish of him indeed. Hubert wiped the ink out of his eyes and sputtered helplessly. Then William discovered that it was time to go.